Our study thus far has, um, did you just text me something? Did you? Oh, okay, all right. Let me, just because if I, Jeremy will text me just to be obnoxious, so. Um, Our study thus far has uh, a number of weeks now in Hebrews chapter 11. We are in verse 30, and um, the text says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days, for seven days. That is um, Hebrews 11, verse 30. Now, most people uh, are familiar with the walls of Jericho, not just uh, a good story for children, but a a true story of faith and endurance. And uh, in fact, the the story illustrates obedience, uh, faithful obedience, even when God's instruction doesn't make any sense to us, okay? And uh, so anyway, our historical narrative is actually found in Joshua chapter 6. I'd like you to, you can turn there, or you can just stand, and I'll read it to you. Uh, if you feel like you can stand for an entire chapter, uh, that's what I'm going to be reading to you this morning, because uh, there's only one verse in Hebrews. So please stand. Joshua, chapter 6. Maybe I won't read the whole chapter. Maybe I will. It's a safe place, right, to read the Bible? All right. Now, Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war, you shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets, shall come to pass. When they make a long blast with the ram's horns, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed, And march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people saying, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, 
But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that went, that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, And the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and took the city. Let's stop there and pray. Well, Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for all the things that you've done in the past with your people. And I thank you for the things that you're presently doing with your people. I thank you for, Lord, the history of your goodness, your kindness to us, your leadership. And Lord, I pray that as we talk about some of the things in this story and how it applies to us, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts and Lord, that you'd be blessed. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. (coughs) Familiar story. Lots of interesting details and things to consider. Um, And as you may have noticed, uh, from the very beginning of the story all the way to the end, there is uh, a test of faith, and uh, and I think also sort of, uh, you know, something that requires uh, endurance. It is a test of endurance. You know, first, the, the command to march around a walled city and yell at it in order to bring the walls down is scientifically uh, it's just not plausible. So there's that. And then second, uh, why, why 13 laps around the city over seven days? Why not just get it over with? Why 13 laps? Now, I'm not trying to present a, a numerological mystery. I won't be answering that exactly for some of you that might be curious. But before we answer the questions, I want to look a little bit deeper into the story and then we'll uh, hopefully draw some application from it. If we back up a little in the book of Joshua, uh, there's an important detail that probably should have been in chapter 6, but instead it's at the, it's at the end of chapter 5. So in chapter 5 of Joshua, verse 13, to the end of the chapter, we find Joshua and he's, he's there near Jericho. He's there near it, and, uh, and he's probably drawing up his strategy of engagement. After all, Jericho wasn't an open village, okay? and it would require more attention than a city that was on an elevated position. Jericho was a walled city, which would need careful planning, 
uh, with specialized weaponry and equipment. And, and Joshua, of all people, he knew that because uh, to date, he had besieged and conquered 60 fortified cities. It's not a detail in Joshua. We actually learned that from Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 5. So how many of you here have conquered a walled city? It wasn't made of Legos or Lincoln Logs. <laughs> so I thought. Joshua was an expert in his craft. He was a man of war. He was a master in the rules of engagement. Uh, I would say that when you read about the history of Joshua, both in Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua, he is one of the most successful men in the world militarily, historically. Okay? Um, he knew what he was doing. And so there he was, he's planning the assault, he's, he's weighing every possible approach and every potential outcome, and as he sat there deliberating, he looked up and saw a man, a stranger, standing opposite of him with his sword drawn. And so Joshua, being the kind of man that he was, he walked right up to the stranger with his sword drawn, not Joshua, but the other guy, and said, are you on our side or the enemy's? And the strange man with his sword out, he said, no. <laughs> but I have come as the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua immediately fell on his face to the ground and began to worship at the feet of this mysterious person. Now, Joshua knew instantly who it was that he was talking to, and that explains why he so quickly let up his guard, okay, with a man standing there with a sword. And Joshua said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And just as Moses was commanded to remove his sandals when he encountered the Lord at the burning bush, Joshua was told to remove his sandals because the ground was now sacred by virtue of this mysterious person, and it was the Lord. It was the Lord in, in a unique uh, kind of appearance. And, and it's at this point that we turn the page to Joshua chapter 6, where the Lord, who commands his army, gave Joshua his marching orders. And so here it's, it's at this place that whatever uh, plans Joshua had devised regarding this engagement of Jericho would have been discarded. Hopefully he only spent 10 minutes or so. Uh, but now those plans are totally obsolete for this alternative that made very, very little sense. Maybe even had the appearance of madness. Oh, oh the directions, uh, they were clear, right? The directions are clear. March and yell, got it. But why and, and how made little sense because as Joshua knew, it's not in the war manual. It's just not. A city has never been defeated by that sort of strategy. Uh, walled cities uh, for Joshua and many have been addressed for quite some time. And this technique has just never been experimented with and for good reason. It just didn't make any sense. But the Lord was present as he promised Joshua saying, Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you Go, Joshua 1.9. And so, because God was with him, the instructions didn't really need to make sense. Joshua knew that God would make sense of them. Okay. Now, just as the Lord was with Joshua, he's with us. 
And I think we need to be reminded of that. Jesus said to his people, he said, be assured of this, I am with you even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. And then Paul added something I think that's valuable to this when he declared, if God is for us, who then can be against us, Romans 8, 31. Now, that statement, of course, is is couched in a context that means that because God has secured the final outcome of our lives in eternity, there's no force that can keep us from what God has determined for us. That's what the text means. And that's pretty reassuring, I think. Okay. And therefore, if the Lord is with us and for us, as he most certainly is, then there is no instruction from his word that should not be followed, even if it doesn't make sense. Right? Even if it doesn't make sense to us. And so Joshua, you know, trusting in the God who gave the instructions and not in the instructions themselves, he went to his military leaders and he, he pitched this strategy on the war table as if it were just common strategy. And you can just imagine the kinds of faces that were made, the, the sort of responses that were either stated or at least entertained. And Joshua, I think, sensing all this was probably like, look, guys, I know how it sounds, but it was the Lord, so we're doing this. We're going to trust him. We're going to march around this puppy, and on the seventh day, we're going to shout those walls to the ground. Right? This is what we're doing, purely because the Lord told us to do it. Now, that's Joshua for you, and that's the history of Joshua through the Exodus, through the wilderness wanderings, and then into Canaan. But what about some of the people? Where would you stand with instructions like that? I know where you would stand, because we're so scientific. And we have you know, bombs and stuff today. <laughs> yeah. So some questions I want to look at this morning is, what do we do when God's instruction doesn't make any sense to us? What do we do? I also want to ask, what do we do after prolonged obedience doesn't produce the anticipated results or the results that we hoped for? What do we do? When, this, when these instructions kind of came down the pipe, uh, what do you think some of the people were thinking after three or four days? where not a brick had fallen off the wall and not as much as a crack had appeared in the structure. And you know, Joshua, he had forbid them from speaking as they were marching around the city, but he couldn't stop them from thinking, thinking, what are we doing? Yeah. There must have been all kinds of interesting discussion around the campfire at night, in the tent with the family, and people saying, I don't understand. We've, we've taken fortified cities before. Why don't we just starve the city out, burn the city gates, or ram it through? Either Joshua is getting soft or he's losing his mind because marching around the city and yelling at it, are you kidding me? We're going to be the laughing stock of Canaan. When are the other generals going to call an end to this madness? Now here it is. How many of us have looked at the instruction of God's word and thought, 
there's a better way. And we might say that for a number of reasons. We might say it because we don't like what is said or because what is said just really doesn't make any sense to me. And it's taking too long to get any results. How many of you have done that? How many of you looked at God's word? You understand that it's clearly stated. It's clear enough. But there's got to be a better way. And if we're going to get anything done around here, we just got to do something different. Yeah, most of us are no stranger, I think, to that sort of thinking in one context or another or to some degree or another. Okay. I know I have been. Um, so I want to provide a few examples of relationships that we face. See if you connect with any of them or see if you might be able to minister to someone else in them. Uh, many wives, by the way, are reduced to this thinking when day after day and year after year they serve their husband, they respect his authority and they follow his lead while he continues to uh, take no initiative to be responsible and immature, or perhaps uh, worst of all, he's distant and he shows little appreciation and love for her. And so she begins to wonder, what is the, the sensibility of this? What am I doing this for? What's the purpose? There's nothing to show for my efforts. It's not yielding the results that I had hoped for and certainly not the life that I had dreamed of. Yeah. I've certainly not been a perfectly submissive wife who has, but I have committed myself to God's word only to be hurt and disappointed a time and time again by this man. Now, that's a difficult place to be, and my heart breaks for those women. There are a few things, I think, worse than being treated that way by the one who was supposed to be loving to you, protecting you, providing for you. Scriptures make it clear that God created the woman to be cherished by her husband, and so how painful when he only cherishes himself and his own interests. And the story is way too common. And this very thing has haunted men just the same, who day after day and year after year, they've cherished their wife, they've honored her as the weaker vessel, and they've worked hard to be understanding toward her when she continues to disrespect his authority and criticize his character and, and cripple his leadership. And through all of that, he wonders about the sensibility of it. Why do I keep this up? Why do I continue to cherish this woman who thinks so little of me and challenges and criticizes every move I make? I feel so stupid. And both husbands and wives have been victims of a theology that says, wife, if you would only submit to your husband as the church is subject to Christ, he would love you as Christ loves the church. Or, I, I'm sure you've heard this one, husband, if you would only love your wife like Christ loves the church, she would submit to you and respect your authority. Yeah. There's no such promises, by the way, in Ephesians 5 or 1 Peter 3 that would lead any sensible interpreter to that conclusion. Nine of one of the passages are stated in an if-then construction. Okay? There's no, if you do this, then he or she will be the spouse of your dreams. 
The reality is it's a command without any conditions or promises attached. You know, see, I, I understand. We read conditions and promises into the text, but they do not exist. And so when people do that, we harm the text and we either heap disappointment or guilt upon ourselves. Okay? And when I hear people say, if husbands would only love their wives like Christ loves the church, that the wife would then submit to her husband. When I hear that nonsense, I always say, well, you know, Jesus has loved the church and the church has failed to submit to him. So how is your argument convincing in the context of marriage? Now, do I think it would be helpful? Yes. But the text doesn't even imply that kind of reasoning. If we follow that same kind of reasoning, we come to a very dangerous conclusion because we could say there was a deficiency in Christ's love because of a deficiency in the church's obedience. I'm not going down that path with anybody. Amen? I'm not tracking. The line of reasoning also removes personal responsibility from the individual parties in the marriage. And I think that's scary. If a husband doesn't have to love his wife until she respects his authority, and if a wife doesn't have to respect her husband's authority until he loves her, then no one has to do anything. Isn't that what that ultimately says? I think that's dangerous thinking. And it's interesting that as our culture trends more and more secular, uh, the most notorious family ministry in America is in favor of that interpretation. And it's a blatant rejection of the authority of God's word. Now I know that because I read an article from them and in my being horrified, I wrote them a letter and it confirmed that they believe that in their letter or their article. But the real thing is, is, since when do we justify disobedience or blame our disobedience on someone else? That'll never stand on judgment day for any of us in any context. Okay. The word of God must stand alone. So I think the question is, when we, when we look at a context like this, and we'll get to some others, what do we do when God's word doesn't seem to make any sense to us? What do we do? And what do we do when obeying his word doesn't yield the results that we hoped for? And I think the simple answer, of course, is the one that nobody wants to hear. It's do as you're told. <laughs> and we love that. Do as you're told. But because of poor Bible teaching and, and the influence of our culture, the depravity of our own hearts, we struggle with all of that. And we will struggle. So I want to reason with this for a minute. And, but first, I want to say something. Uh, this morning, I'm not, I'm not addressing the, the issue of the abuse of a spouse. Okay, that would be for another discussion. Um, if your spouse abuses you, I'm not talking to you this morning. Um, but I would like to talk to you. And if you don't want to talk to me, talk to one of my elders, because we would like to help you. Okay? So let me reason with this for the rest of you. One of the first things that we need to do is that we need to change our perspective when we read the scriptures. We need to, we need to gain the proper perspective. We have a tendency to think that obedience to a passage like Ephesians 5 has more to do with our spouse than the text says. But you need to understand that your spouse did not provide the instruction in Ephesians 5, did they? 
They did not. It's instruction that has come from the Lord, and therefore your obedience to the text is unto God and not unto your spouse. Now, our obedience to the word should always be a blessing to our spouse, no doubt, but it's unto God and it's for his glory that we perform our responsibilities. Now, how many times have you heard this text? And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Well, I think we hear that frequently, but like, like we often hear verses quoted, they're never couched in their context. Well, the context of this verse just happens to be in the context of marriage, the marriage relationship, the child-parent relationship, the bond-servant and servant relationship. Paul is saying, fulfill your obligation to the Lord in all those relationships, do it hardly as to the Lord and not to men. That changes things a little bit, okay? And then he closes with this. He says, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. I love that. I love that. You know, as a pastor, I'm always being pressured uh, politically, socially, and all of this other stuff. So how are you going to address this? What are you going to do? And I love to say, I serve the Lord Christ. I'll ask him. Because I'm not going to bow to any social agenda or political thing. Because they don't, they don't call my marching orders. And that should go for all of us, right? We serve the Lord Christ. Okay. And then he says, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is zero partiality. Colossians 3, 24 through 25. So now let's, let's bring that back to what we're talking about. When a wife obeys her husband and respects his authority, she's obeying the Lord and demonstrating loyalty to Christ, especially when her husband's a bum. Okay? And when a husband cherishes his wife, leading her by the instruction of God's word, dwelling with her with understanding, honoring her as the weaker vessel, he's obeying the Lord and demonstrating loyalty to Christ, especially when she's unbearable. You get it, right? You get it. You see, the mentality that we should have by faith is this. I will do for my spouse what God has called me to do because in doing that, I honor the Lord. And I will not let my spouse's behavior, whether good or bad, derail me from honoring God. I will, I will obey Christ in spite of him or her. That is an important distinction to make when we read and we study the scriptures. We must see that. Okay? We serve our spouse because we're serving the Lord. Is that true? It is true. Okay? Now, of course, ideally, according to God's will... Both the husband and the wife should fulfill their obligations, their biblical obligations, as Peter says, so they can enjoy being heirs together of the grace of life. That's how it should be. That's what we strive for. But to those who are not, who aren't enjoying the, the blessedness that they could, Jesus would say, blessed, which means happy, he says, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The point of bringing that up is that Jesus is saying that you can be happy in spite of your, your context. I don't think he was mistaken. He's saying in the Sermon on the Mount, if you apply the principles here, you will be happy in spite of the world around you, even if your spouse is rotten. In the same sermon, he said, you have heard that it was said, insert whatever relationship you want, by the way, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, so that you may become sons of your Father in heaven. What that means to be the son of, it means uh, to be like. Doing those things makes you like the Father. Blessing, praying, and being kind to those who hate you. Do that so that you can become. Now, I think that it's, it's tragic, and I've met with enough couples over the years that enemies are in the same home. And it's miserable. But that text applies to that. It applies to that. It's tragic that it happens there. And it's heartbreaking. And so I think it's even more necessary for those people that day in and day out, year after year, that they trust the Lord and they take him at his word. Okay, trust him. And I have to say, because we are in the book of Hebrews and the context is communicating this to us very clearly, that we may not enjoy in this life all of the benefits of faith. We may not, okay? Just as those in the, in the book of Hebrews 11 did not, okay? They live for God by faith and the text says they died empty-handed. But Jesus did say to them, great is your reward. Their example shows that we don't just live for this life now, but we live for the life to come. Okay. So let me get off that topic for a minute. Let me address our youth. What do you do? What do you do when God's instruction doesn't seem to make any sense, especially when you think that you've endured and things happen to uh, not happen the way you want? Let's be honest. Not all parents are easy to honor and obey. I'm not looking for any hands. Okay? <laughs> but we do know that the scriptures are abundantly clear that the children are to honor and obey their parents. And to many youth, this is perplexing because there is no passage in scripture that provides any conditions concerning this matter. Yeah. Neither Ephesians 6.1 or Colossians 3.20 say that a child only has to honor their parents if their parents are honorable or they only have to obey their parents when their parents want them to do something that's pleasant. I could share many stories with you. I'm just going to share one with you. I remember in my, my youthful arrogance writing Colossians 3.20 to my mother which says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. <laughs> You see, I, I didn't like to be told what to do, and I interpreted my mother's instruction as a provocation that would lead to my discouragement. And so, if I was to honor my mother, it would be on the condition that she would basically leave me alone and let me do as I pleased. Yeah, she never left me alone, but quite often I did as I pleased, uh, to my own shame. I felt that way about everyone, though. I, you know, it wasn't my mother that was the problem. 
And I certainly wasn't saved at that time. I was just skilled with manipulation, as teenagers can be. It's amazing how skilled we can become by age 12 or 13. But I remember in the process of my conversion at age 22, the, the issue of honoring my mother came to the forefront. God was saying, well, but this, this issue I want to talk to you about, there's this issue. It was a matter of repentance, which, by the way, is a condition for salvation. But honoring my mother, you know, though wasn't my great challenge, the Lord was calling me to forgive and honor my father. And I remember at that time think how, how little sense that made to me. What would I honor him for was my thought. And as nothing came to mind, I realized that this was not about my dad at all, but had everything to do with my father in heaven, to whom I was crying out to as Lord. And if I would not obey him, then he was not my Lord. That's a good, sobering reality to come to for a young man, especially in combat arms. God was not telling me to honor my father upon the discovery of something honorable in him. The text of scripture does not say that, okay? He wasn't telling me to do that. God was calling me to honor my father purely because of the position that he gave him. That can be a very hard pill to swallow for many of us, okay? But as I grew in faith, not only had I forgiven my father and honored him, I genuinely loved him and do more and more every day. And so regardless of what my father does or does not do, he's going to get honored because in honoring him, I honor who? I honor God. That's right. And I'm not going to let that get in the way of honoring my king. Amen? And really, it's impossible to honor God without honoring our parents. In fact, I can always tell how spiritual a teenager actually is by the degree that he or she honors their parents. Something to keep in mind, youth. Yeah. That's actually how I selected youth for ministry when I was in youth ministry. I always looked at their relationship with their parents. Okay. So you should not allow the behavior of your parents, whether good, whether bad, to derail you from honoring the one who is always worthy of honor, okay, yeah, and God gets to decide how he's honored. Let me move on to another example of trusting God uh, when it doesn't make sense. I do this at risk of my uh, reputation uh, or maybe my friendships. It seems to be getting more difficult, I think, these days um, when it comes to speak well of those in authority. So I just let that Go for a minute. It becomes more difficult these days to speak well of those in authority, especially as wisdom wanes and lunacy leads the day. You know, I mean, overtaxation and the increase of government overreach, that's all one thing, but the propagation and indoctrination of gross immorality from the top could gag a maggot, okay? The stuff that's going on. And if it wasn't stated so clearly in the scriptures, I probably wouldn't be completely opposed to cleansing the land as Joshua did in Canaan. 
Okay? You know, Paul taught us to abhor that which is evil, Romans 12, 9. To abhor literally means to hate, to hate what is evil, to detest it. And I think I've got that down pretty well, at least in other people's lives. (laughs) But in the very next chapter, Paul instructs us to be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, Romans 13, 1 through 2. And what irks me is there's no conditions in the text. God doesn't say, be subject to the governing authorities if they rule like Mother Teresa. It's just not there. And Paul said all of this while he himself being under the the rule of Rome and Caesar, a government that was at least as immoral as our own and far more brutal. But then to think, make things even worse or more difficult, Peter and Jude, they cast this gloomy light on those who would speak ill of government leaders. Peter says that those who speak evil of dignitaries walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. 2 Peter 1.10, or 2 Peter 2.10. And Jude says that those who speak evil of dignitaries are like those who devile the flesh like those of Sodom and Gomorrah did. Jude chapter 1, 7 through 8. And then he mentions that, that even Michael, the archangel, when he was contending with the devil, it says that Michael dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you, Jude 1, 9. And then for the same reason that we would not murder someone, James says that we should not slander them, seeing that they're created in the image of God. James 3, 9 through 10. So as Christians, we're not to resist and we're not to slander government authorities. And if that's not hard enough, Paul brings things to a whole new level saying, therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a, pe- a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4. So we don't resist the government by taking up arms or by giving them a tongue lashing, but instead we're supposed to take this to our God in prayer because he wants to save them. Even that one person in authority that hates God and hates Christians? Yep. Yep. So let me remind you, our study is about obeying God's word when it doesn't seem to make any sense. And when obedience doesn't yield the anticipated results. Oh, his instructions are crystal clear. But there's something in us that doesn't jive with it. We just don't get it. But God would say to us, I want you to trust me. I want you to obey my word. Do not grow weary in doing what is good for in due time. Now, don't confuse that for your time. But in due time, you will reap a harvest. And we have to understand something If we ignore his word, 
and we replace it with our own wisdom, we will not only dishonor God, we'll fight against his plan and design, we'll become a part of the problem which will make us a rebel against the king. God said to Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. How we would love for that verse to be in a different context. Yeah. So like Joshua, we need to trust the Lord, trusting that he knows what he's doing, even when we can't really make sense of it. We need to do that. Sometimes we just need to march and shout in obedience, even if it feels like madness, okay? Even if it feels like madness, the Lord's gonna do his thing in his time and in his way. And when we can do that, it's just a sign of maturity, okay? He's trustworthy, he is good, and the truth is only those who obey him are going to experience him in that way. Otherwise, you'll be left to your own thing. And I I tell you, I'd much rather suffer in the grace of God than outside of it. I'd rather suffer with him at my side than wondering where he is. Now, I won't lie to you and tell you that obeying God's word will bring your husband around or gain your wife's respect. It won't make your parents honorable and it won't make our government moral. The truth is that obeying God's word won't do a lot of things that we often expect, but it will do the most important thing. It will honor God. It will honor God, okay? And as Jesus said, we can be blessed in spite of it all, okay? Some good may come of it, but maybe not. It wasn't for the Hebrews. It didn't for many that came before us. We may have to just look to our reward in heaven, but it'll be worth it. Now, I don't want to sign off without saying that there are many great rewards for obeying God's word, okay? There are, uh, but that's not for our discussion this morning. Maybe it's in the near future. I just want to say that regardless, regardless, we need to trust the Lord. We need to obey his word in spite of how the world treats us. You know, as, as Paul said, this world is going to prove to be a flash in the pan. And then eternity is going to eclipse it. And we'll be done with it. We'll be done with it. So if God's instruction doesn't seem to make sense to us, it doesn't mean it's senseless. Okay? It doesn't mean it's senseless. I would say march and shout as long as the Lord tells you to. And eventually, as As Paul promised, he'll make it good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Suffering is in the world because the world's broken by sin. So trust the Lord and he'll see you through it. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Next week, we'll get into Rahab the harlot and we'll look at how in the world a prostitute got into Jesus' genealogy. It's pretty great, I think. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we could have brought up so many different contexts this morning. 
But certainly relationships are by far the most important. But Lord, I, I know that, that you know that when you give instructions sometimes to our, our earthly minds, it just doesn't compute. And while you understand that, you still expect us to trust you. Because without faith, it's impossible to please you. And if it's not done in faith, what is it? And so Lord, we just need to be more faithful. We need to be filled with faith. We need to trust in the good God who saved us, the God who will preserve us, and as Paul says, will one day glorify us in his presence. So Lord, I know that, that, that people in this body are struggling with any number of things. And I know that you are able to address them, that you're, you're able to come alongside them in their suffering, in their difficulties, Lord, in family, in friends, in all the relationships. And Lord, you're able to grant them grace to live according to your word. You've said much. Lord, help us to obey, even when it hurts, even when it's hard. But Lord, you will grant grace. And Lord, I really believe it's your responsibility to make us happy. And not our spouse, not our parents, but you, and you will. So help us to, to lean on you. So we love you. Thank you for my church family. Just pray for your blessing upon them. And Lord, we continue to pray for, for Jeannie in the circumstances that she's in now. Your word says you are the God of all comfort. And so we know that you'll, you'll give her comfort. You'll strengthen her and you'll walk with her through this. And just help us, Lord, to be encouraging her, to be praying for her, and to helping her when she needs it. Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Lord bless you guys.